Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Open with me to the book of Romans, chapter 13. We're going to talk about everyone's favorite topic today. That is the topic of submission. Remember after we talked about this in the book of First Peter, uh, I had lots of fun questions and talks after that, so I'm afraid this is going to be much in that same line of thinking. Is there any more unpopular word in the church talk than submission, except maybe giving? The submission, is, <laughs> submission is up there towards the top because no one can tell me what to do. This is America. And beyond America, this is Texas, right? This is Texas. It's in our DNA. It's ingrained into who we are as Americans, as Texans, as human beings. Specifically, in many cases, that sort of mindset is there because of our fallenness as human beings. Now, don't get me wrong. There's, there are great principles of independence, uh, what it means to be created by our creator, as our declaration says, with certain inalienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are righteous, good, holy principles. What we talked about today in our statement of faith, religious liberty, independence in that regard is a wonderful principle. But these good, holy principles, if we're not careful, can be perverted and twisted into something sinful if we lean then into pride and arrogance and hatefulness, where independence and those good and holy rights that God has given us turn into selfishness or being self-centered. Back in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, remember as Zane taught us two weeks ago, Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and holy and acceptable and perfect. And since then, the past two weeks, we've been trying to see how to do that in our fallen world. And in our church, if we're going to give ourselves to God as living sacrifices, we have to start, as Paul did in verses 3 through 8 of this chapter, chapter 12, giving ourselves to service in the body of Christ. And then as we finished chapter 12 last week, we give ourselves in love to the body of Christ. But it moves beyond that, doesn't it? Because starting in verse 14 of chapter 12, we give ourselves in love even to our enemies. And speaking of enemies, how about we start chapter 13 talking about the government, authorities, or just the concept of authority. And yet that's where Paul goes immediately next. What we owe our rulers, what we owe our neighbors, and he ends today in chapter 13, why it matters, how we conduct ourselves. Let's begin reading in chapter 13, verse 1. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's servant, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness or sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we love you. We thank you for your inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Help us today as we read, as we listen, to hear your voice. Pinpoint those areas in our hearts that we're going to want to run from. Those areas in our lives that we're going to want to hide from today. And help us, by your Holy Spirit, to hear and to listen and to obey. That we might become more and more like your son, Jesus. As in his name we pray today. Amen. Number one today, what we owe the government. What we owe the government. Mike Johnson, a congressman from Louisiana, was just recently elected the House Speaker. And he raised a lot of hackles in the media saying that it was God's will that he be elected Speaker. And although the media took that one way, we hear that as just basic Christian teaching. What Paul says here in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, the second part, there is no authority except that is from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So on one hand, we hear Johnson's claims, and we say, yes, that's, that's basic biblical teaching. God puts the people in charge he wants in charge. Now, this might be the challenge for us, though. We have to say that for everyone besides just Representative Johnson. We have to say that for President Biden, we have to say that for Vice President Kamala Harris. We have to say that before them for President Trump and Vice President Pence and before them Obama and Vice President Biden. And on and on we can go with our congressmen, with our Senate, our Supreme Court, our first responders, our police, our judges, our sheriffs, whoever God has placed in authority over us down to our parents and our teachers. Paul says they have been instituted and placed there by God himself. And there is no authority except that is from God. He instituted it. 
And yes, this means the good, the bad, and the ugly. All the way from the most gracious ruler to the most vicious tyrant, no one has authority except that which comes from God. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, we see this profession that it is God who establishes kingdoms. It is for God to raise up and to bring low. That goes for nations, rulers, kings, empires, emperors, states, governors, presidents, you name it. God alone is in sovereign command of who is in authority over people on this earth. And we say yes and amen, maybe, to that. But what comes with that? Go back to the beginning of verse 1. Since this comes from God, since he is the one who institutes this, the first part of verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Having been raised by the sovereign command and leadership of God, we are to submit to them. Further, verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, I know the immediate question on many of our minds today as we read that and hear that is, yeah, but what about bad rulers? What about those who do violate human rights or go against our constitution or whatever it has been in human history when people are not good rulers and they're evil or wicked or murderous? Well, I want us to think about some biblical examples. Think about Daniel. We quoted from the book of Daniel. Think about Daniel in captivity in Babylon, a wicked pagan empire that had, God had used to judge his people and to exile them. And here's Daniel in the service of the very king who has persecuted his people. And later it's the Medes and the Persians with King Darius, right? And Daniel serves with respect. He serves with honor. He serves with dignity. What about Nehemiah? Nehemiah held captive by the Persian king Artaxerxes. But he renders him service And as he addresses him, he addresses him as your majesty, most honorable king. That is respectful, submissive service. And in each case, God used their tone and their spirit towards their rulers. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we'll mention them in a minute. Nehemiah, all the rest. He used their submissive, honorable attitude to gain rapport with those rulers, didn't he? Showing even in the face of tyranny how we can obey these principles. Now, you know in each of those stories what that did not mean, don't you? For Daniel, even though he respected his king and served him well with wisdom and grace and tenderness, what did it not mean for Daniel? It did not mean that Daniel would refuse to pray to his God. And he suffered the consequences which God delivered him from. For Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, what did it mean for them? What did it not mean for them? They did not worship the golden statue of the king. What did it mean for David? King David, having been anointed king and called to worship and serve God in that way, what did it mean for David except that he did not kill Saul even when he had the opportunity to do so? What did it mean for the apostles in the early church as they honored the emperor, as we'll see later, as they honored their authorities and obeyed their governing authorities? Well, what it did not mean is that they refused to preach Christ. In fact, in Acts 5, verse 29, they said that to their rulers, didn't they? We cannot obey men over God. 
And so when it comes to preaching Christ, we have to obey God rather than men. For the early church, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, to honor the emperor. As treacherous and murderous as those emperors would be, and as much persecution as they would pour out on God's people in the early church, nevertheless, the apostles say, give honor to the emperor. But what did that not mean? It did not mean calling Caesar Lord. And in many cases, the early church gave their lives for their refusal to worship the emperor or the false gods. And instead they said, Jesus is Lord. So in all these examples, we see that tension between honor and respect and service and submission and obedience, but not when it is in contradiction to God's word and God's law. So when we read Paul this morning, we don't need to read, obey no matter what. There are clear instances when those rulers overstep their bounds, overstep God's law, and they must be resisted. We see that principle throughout Scripture. We see it in the New Testament. We see it in the early church. There are lines that cannot be crossed. But Paul has in mind here, beginning in verse 3, what this looks like ideally. If the state is operating as God has designed the ruling authorities to operate, this is what that looks like in verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of those who are in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive their approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So Paul has in mind the state operating as it should, and he says they should be a terror to those who do evil. They should bring the sword and God's wrath to wrongdoers. And so in this picture of the ideal situation, we see God's design for the state to wield its power, to wield its influence, and even to wield the sword to combat evil and to promote good. For good conduct, verse 3, to be approved, and for bad conduct, to be punished. Now, on just a basic bottom line principle, this is God's design for the state. This is God's design for human government, to punish evil and to reward good. Now, we know humans, we know human government. And so we ask the question, are these people who rule not sinners? Absolutely they are. Saved and unsaved alike, they are all sinners that make mistakes and do not always do as God has designed them to do, right? They are failures at times. Are these human rulers even at times evil in their laws and evil in their designs? Absolutely. But Paul tells us here in verses 3 through 4, as they do their job and as they do their job well, We must show them respect. We must show them honor. Dare we say, as Paul says, we submit to them and we obey them. I want you to see here also the unique authority of the state. When it comes to issues of justice, issues of life and death, and even issues of war. Back in chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says, as far as it depends on you... Live peaceably with all. 
Okay, if it comes down to the individual, your job as a Christian, an individual person, no matter what state, no matter what government you live in, your job is to live peaceably with all. But what about the state? Well, Paul says here, it is for the state, verse 4, to wield the sword. He does not bear the sword in vain, but he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's vengeance and wrath on the wrongdoer. Capital punishment is an issue we talk about sometimes, the death penalty. Just war theory is an ethical Christian issue we talk about. And I believe that all of that is included here in the state's rights and the state's ministry by God's appointment to bear the sword. So I don't believe the Bible teaches absolute pacifism. But I also don't believe the Bible teaches vigilante justice by individuals. Okay? You're not Batman. I'm not Batman. God has not given the sword to me individually. He has given the sword to the state. Justice, the sword, the power of life and death, the power of war has been given to the state as a responsibility by the sovereign control and command of God. So it's one of those things when you talk to people and they get into Christian ethics and maybe, maybe they're arguing against um, Christian ethics or they're arguing against Christianity or the existence of God. And, and they say, well, the, the, the commandment says thou shalt not kill. The commandment says thou shalt not kill. But what does God go on to tell his people to do? To wipe out these nations, to wipe out these pagan rulers. And so God not contradicting, contradicting himself is somehow saying, do not murder and do not take justice upon yourself, but justice and the sword does belong to the state. The same thing can be said in our day. We don't go out and citizens arrest people. Maybe you do. I don't. I'm not going to get involved in that. I'm going to leave that for the police. God has given that responsibility to them. I cannot declare war by myself against anyone or anything or any nation, nor, nor would I. God has given that power to the state to establish justice and to punish wrongdoers. I cannot give the death penalty to people and justify it personally because they did something wrong. That is not for me to do. Paul says, do not seek vengeance. Live peaceably with all as far as it's up to you. But he has given that power to the state. Therefore, verse 5, Paul says, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of of conscience. You see Paul's two arguments there? For believers, those who know Christ, those who believe God's word, and those who, in essence, see how the sausage is made in the background, we know that it's God who has appointed these rulers. We know that it's God who has appointed these authorities. And so we as believers, those who believe God's word, we submit to them in fear of God. But Paul says this isn't just a Christian thing. Submission to authorities doesn't just make sense for Christians or for people who believe in God or any God. Paul says this makes sense just to your conscience. Just regular old common sense tells you the difference between right and wrong. Now, we ignore that. Romans chapter 1 says that we suppress that. But Romans chapter 1 also teaches it's very clearly there. Because each of us, no matter if we're believers or not 
have been made in the image of God. And that law, whether we believe it or acknowledge it or not, is hardwired there in each of us as human beings. And so Paul says this just makes sense to anyone that's thinking clearly. If we're going to make this thing work, if there's going to be society, if there's going to be culture, if there's going to be peace, there has to be rules. There has to be laws. And if there's going to be rules and laws, then there have to be people to enforce those laws. Otherwise, you know how it ends. We all just devolve into anarchy. And so Paul says it makes sense. As Christians, we know this is God's word. We know this is God's truth. But even if we're talking to a pagan unbeliever, they can see the sense in this because the only alternative is chaos. The only alternative to the rule of law The only alternative to the state doing what God has called them to do, even if they do it poorly, the only alternative is the death of society, the death of culture. And ultimately, although we think we're arguing for the opposite, it's the death of self. It's a reversal of this, that God has established this ideally to promote good over evil. But what does anarchy and chaos do? Obviously, it promotes evil over good. Judges 17, verse 6, if you remember back to our series through Judges, and I know you do, two years ago, uh, Judges 17, 6, you remember this little drum beat at the end of Judges, don't you? In those days, there was no king in Israel. And what was the result of that? Everyone did what was right in the sight of their own eyes. And if you remember the book of Judges, all that awful, terrible, terrible stuff at the end of the book This is that drumbeat, not just in 17.6, but three more times the author says that very phrase to remind us how we got to this point. Not only do they have not God as their ruler, but they've rejected any law or any ruler. And what happened? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it led to chaos and death. And this downward spiral for Israel. And you would witness the exact same thing in any other society that rejects the rule of law and the system that God has established. When the government and the state operate as God designed, it is not just a good thing, it is a God thing because this has been instituted and authorized by God, punishing evil, rewarding good. And so as they do that, generally speaking, we owe them respect, honor, and obedience. And you know what's coming next, don't you? Verse 6. You also pay taxes for the authorities, our ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Taxes have been a reality for human governments since there was such a thing as human governments. It was a reality for the Romans. It is a reality in the 21st century, even more so, perhaps. Now, in America, we, perhaps uniquely among all the nations of earth, are allergic to this idea because one of our founding principles was what? No taxation without representation. And we threw a bunch of tea in uh, the Boston Harbor there because we rejected this idea of being taxed unnecessarily and arbitrarily against the will of the people. So we have this healthy allergy to this. But we have to also acknowledge the clear use of taxes. I mean, listen, and you know this, if we want roads, if we want public institutions, 
We want police and judges and sheriffs and people to keep the rule of law and to have a civilized society that takes money. And aside from privatizing everything, which you might argue for, and that's fine, aside from privatizing everything, which has its own conundrums, doesn't it? We have to pay money for this. We have to pay taxes for this. And Paul says very clearly, give taxes to whom taxes are owed. Now in America, we can be thankful that we have this system, at least on paper, of checks and balances. All right, we have representatives. We, we vote on things. And so maybe unique in the course of human history, we have this wonderful right to at least in part determine how we're taxed and what those taxes are spent on, at least on paper, mind you. So we can be thankful for that. But Paul says, as it's designed, verse 6, this serves as the very ministry of God. That as they establish society and as they maintain the rule of law, And as they punish evil, and as they reward good, we give them what they are owed because they are the very ministers of God. And so Paul says in verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. If it's taxes, pay taxes to whom they're owed. If it's revenue, pay revenue to whom it is owed. If it is respect, pay respect to whom it is owed. If it is honor, give honor to whom it is owed. Again, I know this is hard for us as Americans and maybe even specifically as Texans. And our, our political principles sometimes lead us to, to think opposite of this. But I think you'll agree with me that if we stand for order over chaos, if we stand for good over evil, if we stand for the rule of law over crime, in principle, in principle, ideally speaking, this kind of submission is necessary because it reflects God's rule over the earth. Again, when it's possible, chapter 12, verse 18, when it's possible, live peaceably with all people, not violating God's law and also respecting those in authority. But I want you to notice what Paul says here in verse 7. This word, owed, What is owed? I think that's a good choice of words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. Because what is owed to the government, Paul says, is respect, honor, and yes, taxes. But what would Paul say is not owed to the state? Worship. The law of God. And so Paul is very clear in his words here. If it's owed to them give it to them. But if it is not owed to them, you do not have to give it to them. And so there's a difference between respect and honor and submission and worship as you would worship the Lord. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, Jesus had been asked if we should pay taxes to Caesar. Remember this. He's been asked, he's, he's trying, they're trying to back him into a corner to where either on one hand he angers the Romans or on the other hand he angers the Jews. And so they say, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus in his, his divine genius, you know, asks for a coin. Whose image is on the coin? Well, that's Caesar's image on the coin. Okay, Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If it's owed to Caesar, give it to Caesar. But listen, Jesus says, give to God what's owed to God. Tim Keller said it this way in his commentary. 
Jesus says yes to paying Caesar taxes. But Jesus says no to paying Caesar worship. You see the difference? You can disagree with politicians. We will disagree with politicians. Amen? And we still respect them and we still honor them. We see that with Daniel, Nehemiah, the apostles, the early church. You can disagree with politicians, and we will, and you can still pray for them, and you can still honor them, and you can still bless them. Because even if you get to the point where that politician in your mind becomes your worst enemy, Paul says, well, we already covered that in chapter 12. Pray for your enemies. And Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Listen, there may be a time when resistance and disobedience are necessary. And Christians have agreed to that and we've disagreed to when those times are necessary. But they do arise when Caesar, when the government oversteps its bounds and asks for things that they are not owed. There will come a time when that happens. But your political and your social leanings never give you an excuse to be hateful to be spiteful and to be disrespectful towards those in authority. They are there by God's mandate and they would have no authority except God had given it to them and we owe them such submission. Number two today, what we owe our neighbor. While we're on the topic of what is owed, Paul says, ironically in verse eight, owe no one anything (laughs) except To love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul says, I'm going to boil this down to a simple principle. Give respect to whom it is owed. Honor to whom it is owed. Taxes to whom they're owed. But listen, Paul says, here's what's owed to everybody. Regardless of what you think about all that, love is owed to everybody. If we're going to go back to what it means to give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Verses 3 through 8 of chapter 12 say, give yourself to the church. And then verses 9 through 13 say, give yourself in love to the church. And then verses 14 through 21 of chapter 12 say, give yourselves in love even to your enemies. Now we say, honor the authorities. And now Paul would say, in fact, show love to all people. Now, Paul says there's probably a whole sermon in here about the wisdom of debt and loaning and borrowing and things. I don't know that that's Paul's emphasis there at the beginning of verse 8. Oh, no one anything. I'm sure there's some sound advice based on that. But I think the emphasis here is what we would call the oughtness of love. You know what oughtness means, don't you? You ought to do something. It is your obligation and your duty and your command to do something. And Paul here is leaning on the oughtness that we owe people, which is love. It's interesting, Paul's talking about debts and what is owed to people. And he goes to love. Ironically, a debt that has been forgiven for us by the love of God. But now this debt that we could never, ever, ever repay. But in the same token, we've been charged to keep on pouring out love upon God, upon the church, upon others. And Paul summarizes that here at the end of verse 8. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse 9. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now if you're paying attention to what Paul is doing there in those verses, he's summarizing what we call the second table of the law. The first table of the law is vertical, dealing with our relationship and obedience to God, right? Have no other gods before me, vertical. Make no graven images. Worship me how I command, vertical. Keep my name holy, vertical. Honor my Sabbath as holy, vertical. But then we have that transition in what we call the second table, don't we? Away from the vertical, And as an outflow of how we love God, now we have these commands on how to love other people. Honor your father and mother. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. We have those very commandments there. This is what it means to love God. This is what it means to love other people. In fact, this is how Jesus summarized the law. Same chapter, Matthew chapter 22. And they were trying another trick question. They lost on the taxes to Caesar issue, so now they're trying a different tactic. And they say, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And again, they're trying to get Jesus to trip up, to choose one commandment over the other so that someone will be mad. Again, but Jesus in his divine wisdom, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 says what? Here's the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. This is the greatest commandment, Jesus says. You know what he did there? He summarized the first table of the law. With one command, love God, he summarized all that. But then he says what? And the second greatest is like the first one. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you know what he did there? He says, on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus says in two words, love God, love your neighbor. In two words, I've summarized, Jesus says, the entire law. Love God, love your neighbor. And if you notice, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Look at verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, horizontal. You shall not murder, horizontal. You shall not steal, horizontal. You shall not covet. And any commandment, they're summed up in this word. Can't we just sum it up all? Paul says and say, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. And watch that word, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, if you completely devote yourself to the love of God, those first three and four commandments are not a problem. If you commit yourself in love to your neighbors, those last six commandments aren't a problem. They're summed up in those two commands, love God and love people. Now, I want to remind you, though, For following Paul's argument throughout the book of Romans, and you hear that word law come up, you should immediately remember that we are not so good at obeying the law. And so we can't just throw out love God, love people as the message of the gospel. That is an outflow of the gospel. But the message of the gospel begins with the very fact that we don't know how to love God and we don't know how to love our neighbor until... We come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And then once we come to faith in him, having been given new life, having been filled with his spirit, having been filled as a new creation in him, 
now the law is open for us. And now, not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved, God says, here's the general principle. Remember this? Love God and love people. Notice the outward flow of Paul's thought process here. Begin individually. I'm a sinner. I must place my faith in Jesus Christ and be saved individually as a person. I must be a living sacrifice to God. I must live for him. But then you watch how that starts to flow out, don't you? How do I give myself as a living sacrifice? Well, I give myself to the church in service and love. I love my enemies as myself. I submit to the governing authorities. And now, as if we couldn't go far enough, Paul says, in fact, you know what? Just love everybody. It's the outward flow of the gospel. To live, to serve, to give, to love, to submit from a new heart, filled with God's spirit, being conformed into the image of Jesus. Listen, the holidays are upon us. This week is Thanksgiving and then Christmas. And for some, time with family is nothing more than a reminder of wrongdoing. Maybe there's an unresolved feud there, an unresolved argument. I wanna challenge you that maybe this holiday season is a unique opportunity to talk, a unique opportunity to forgive, a unique opportunity to move on, to embrace one another, to apologize, to be done with that. And as a believer, maybe if they're still your enemy, to even love them and bless them and pray for them. Coming up on a big election year, we're already in the midst of it, aren't we, with debates and primaries upon us. Division will be fueled and inflamed by the media, by the candidates themselves, because it's what they do. And perhaps this is a time to disagree. We have principles. We have opinions. As Americans, we have the right to those principles and those opinions. But in those opinions and in those disagreements, here is an opportunity in the next year, because by this time, next year it will all be over, right? Well, maybe, God willing, (laughs) to show respect to show honor, to show love, even in the face of deep disagreements. How can you love in a fulfilling way? Not just out of duty. Okay, remember last week, we talked about how we're good at avoiding and ignoring our enemies. But Paul goes beyond that. Not just avoiding, not just ignoring, but actively blessing them. How can we move away from the duty of just ignoring enemies and ignoring those with whom we disagree and actively loving them, overflowing by God's spirit and love and grace, even in these ways? Paul closes the day telling us, verses 11 through 14, number three, why it matters. Why it matters. It matters, Paul says, because a new world is coming. Look at verse 11. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on 
the armor of light. The time has come, Paul says. The hour is upon us. Salvation is upon us. And it's getting closer every single day. 2 Peter chapter 3, the apostle Peter, talking about the day of the Lord. He says, there will be some that mock and there are some that scoff and say, well, where is his coming? Where is the sign of his coming? Things just go on as they did before. He is not coming. There is no judgment day. God's wrath is not coming. But Peter says, then it will come. And it will burn and scorch the earth. And so Peter asks in 2 Peter 3 verse 11, in light of the coming judgment of God, Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness? Holiness means separation. And there's a lot of churchy definitions about what separation and holiness means. And quite honestly, a lot of it has to do with things you don't do. And there is certainly some don'ts in holiness, right? Like don't sin, that's kind of a given. But there's also what you do. What we don't do, fleeing sin, but what we must do in fleeing to God in obedience. And I think that's what Paul has in mind here. Because he's been talking about this active holiness, loving, giving, humility, In fact, look at how he says it in verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Verse 14, here's the active, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. What the sinful flesh wants, lusts, Anger, bitterness, hatred, rebellion, selfishness. Paul says, kill it. The theological word for that is to mortify it. The Puritan John Owen said, you need to kill sin or it will be killing you. There's a death in this sacrifice. Give yourselves, chapter 12, verse 1, to God as a living sacrifice. There's a death that's required there. Verse 2 says, here's what that death looks like. Do not be conformed to the world. But there's also life there, right? By God's spirit, now live and love and give and submit. There's the living in the sacrifice. And in verse 2, Paul says what that is. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's a life freed from the tyranny of our flesh and from sin and from Satan. And it's a life submitted and subdued by God. As we see God's love and his grace take root in our hearts, that's why Paul says, because of the mercies of God, because of all this that God has done for you, therefore live for him. And that must explode out of us by the Holy Spirit to our church, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our enemies, to the state, to everybody. And I don't want you to think this morning that this will come easy. It will not come easily. Verse 14, Paul talks about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the language of putting on a new set of clothes. But look at what he calls those clothes back in verse 12. Put on the armor 
of light. Over in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us what this armor looks like. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 14. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, this will not be easy. And it's more than just a change of clothes. This is putting on armor to go to war. War against the evil one and his flaming darts. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's what gets in our minds so many times when it comes to these principles of the state and politics and sin and evil and wickedness. The stuff that we had in Dumas on Friday. This is what so often gets blurred is that we start seeing the people as the problem. The people aren't the problem. The people are the victims. The victims of Satan and sin and tyranny. Yes, they are active in it. Yes, they are suppressing the truth. But it's because they are held captive by the evil one. And Paul says, we're not warring against them. We're warring against all the principalities of evil and darkness that have control over this present world. This armor is not a fleshly armor. This war is not an earthly war. It's a war with Satan. It's a war with darkness. Listen, more than that, this morning, maybe it's a war within yourself. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try my thoughts. Verse 24, see if there's any wicked way in me. As we begin to think about the enemies in the world and the enemies in politics and the enemies in our society and the enemies on the corner of our schools, maybe we should begin to think of the enemy within ourselves and go to holy war there first. Paul says, put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. How do we fight this war? How do we win this war? It's unlike any other. Listen to the irony here. This war, we fight by surrendering. By submitting to God and submitting to other people. This war, we win by dying. Dying to ourself. Dying to our sin. So we might live to God. This is a completely new life. It's a completely new way of thinking within the church, towards our enemies, towards the state, towards the world. And Paul says this morning, no, submission is not an ugly word. Submission is a beautiful word. Because in that word submission, we see the gospel. We see the son who submitted to the will of his father, even to the point of death. Why? For us and for our salvation. In submission, we see the beauty of living as a sacrifice of worship to God. And in the word submission, we see the death of who we were in our sin. 
We see the emergence of who we now are in Christ. The biblical word for this new life that we have is regeneration. The new birth. We're new people now. Any man is in Christ. He is a new creation. And the song that we're about to sing, you guys can come ahead. The song that we're about to sing is based on a Puritan prayer called Regeneration. And I'm just going to read this prayer to us as our closing prayer today before we sing. And as you hear the prayer, listen to how, how it flows from our death and sin to our new life in Christ to the outflow of that love to others and service and love. Listen to what the author says here. O God of the highest heaven, occupy the throne of my heart. Take full possession and reign supreme. Lay low every rebel lust. Let no vile passion resist thy holy war. Manifest thy mighty power and make me thine forever. Thou art worthy to be praised with my every breath, loved with my every faculty of soul, served with my every act of life. Thou hast loved me, espoused me, received me, purchased, washed, favored, clothed, adorned me. When I was worthless, vile, soiled, and polluted, when I was dead in iniquities, having no eyes to see thee, no ears to hear thee, no taste to relish thy joys, no intelligence to know thee, but thy spirit has quickened me, has brought me into a new world as a new creature, has given me spiritual perception, has opened to me thy word as light, guide, solace, and joy. Thy presence to me, a treasure of unending peace. No provocation can part me from thy sympathy, for thou hast drawn me with cords of love and dost forgive me daily, hourly. Now listen. Oh, help me then to walk worthy of thy love, of my hopes and my vocation. Keep me, for I cannot keep myself. Protect me that no evil may befall me. Let me lay aside every sin admired of many and help me to walk by thy side, lean on thy arm and converse with thee. Listen to this last part. Because of all that God has done for us, that henceforth, I may be salt of the earth and a blessing to all. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.